will do in our worship service. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with him into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's refreshing to come to chapter 14 after chapter 13, isn't it? 
If you recall Saul's activity in chapter 13 and not waiting for Samuel, stepping outside of his lane, offering a sacrifice, not doing the job of a king, but the job of a priest, something he wasn't called to. God's punishment that came then through Samuel's words. Now we come to this moment where we see a young man rise up, trusting in a powerful God with a very plain faith. Have you ever heard somebody in a moment of trying to come up with a way to deal with a problem have a sort of out-of-the-box, even outlandish idea and then have someone else say, that sounds crazy. And then perhaps a third person joins in and says, crazy enough to work? I don't know if that only happens in the movies, but I try to insert it into my life as often as I can. I wonder if that's something that we as a culture appreciate, those crazy ideas that seem so out there, seem so contrary to maybe even common sense or the wisdom that we've established and trust in. I think Jonathan here does something kind of crazy. And it just might be crazy enough to work. We know it does, of course. I think what Jonathan shows us in this is that we need to trust in the power of the Lord and simply act accordingly. That's basically what he does in these 23 verses. Now, again, to contrast that with his father last week, he did have a crazy idea. He just didn't realize the true craziness of it. See, his idea was, at first, I'm going to obey God. That's a good idea. It's actually not too crazy to us who know him. But as he waited and waited, and waited, which was his act of obedience, by the way. If you recall back to 1 Samuel 10, Saul was told by Samuel to go and wait for me seven days at Gilgal. That was it. That was what obedience looked like, waiting for seven days. But by the end of that seventh day, he had finally had enough, and his crazy idea was not crazy enough to work. Again, his idea was... Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifice. We've got the Philistines surrounding us. My men are running away and hiding in holes and defecting to the enemy's side. I need to do something. And honestly, in Saul's mind, it didn't sound crazy at all because it's just a sacrifice anyway. Why is it that the priests have to do it? Samuel is late, according to my timetable. So I will go ahead and take that responsibility on myself. And he finds something that he came up with apart from God's plan, stepping off of the path that God put him on to be the true crazy plan. But that's chapter 13. If you remember in chapter 13, we have these numerous Philistines. We have fearful Israelites and an impatient king. And we see Saul's crazy move as completely contrasted with Jonathan's. Now, I wonder, though, which one would be easier for you to make? Would it be easier for you to say, all we need is somebody to take a knife, kill an animal, light the fire, and then we can move on with our life? I mean, that's an easy, simple, three-step plan here. 
In contrast, what we just read in chapter 14, Jonathan says, Hey, armor bearer, I know that the Philistines outnumber us 100 to 1. And I know that this idea is going to sound especially crazy because it doesn't involve rallying the troops and taking all the strength that we have. My idea is, why don't the two of us go out to the Philistine camp and see what God does? I have a sword after all. Which one would be easier for you to step out in faith and do? Do you notice how much easier it is to disobey God than it is to actually obey Him? To have a plain faith in who He is and what He can do. Look down with me, if you will, back to chapter 14. And we have in verse 6, Jonathan saying this amazing line, this incredibly impressive line, although it is of the most simple theological truth. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Simple preschool, Sunday school lesson. And yet Jonathan takes that truth and says, you know... What are we doing hiding here? What are we, what are we, why don't we just go for it? Trust in the power of the Lord and act accordingly. Plain faith in a powerful God reveals his saving work to the world and it also resolves our personal frailties. And no matter what you believe in your heart of hearts right this morning, you have personal frailties, you have weaknesses. I know we spend all our days trying to overcome those weaknesses. We swim in a sea of self-sufficiency in this world. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it yourself. But plain faith in the power of God, while it reveals his saving work, it also resolves our personal frailties. Do we try to resolve our personal frailties by overcoming that weakness and trying to grow and trying to become better and trying to become the best we can in every aspect of life. And in one sense, that's not a bad thing. It's good for us to grow if we're seeking the Lord's growth in our life. But I think what Jonathan is showing us is a plain faith that recognizes that what we don't need to do is say, let's gather up all that we've got and add a little God into the mix and maybe... That will be enough. Rather, Jonathan says, it's actually better for me to make this plan a secret because I doubt that most of the soldiers would go for it. I'm not even going to tell my father what I'm going to do because I know what he'll say. I mean, can't you hear like a teenage angst story in this chapter? Right? It sounds like an after-school special. Only those after-school specials would end with Jonathan going and being defeated and perhaps being captured. His dad showing up and saving him and saying, now, Jonathan... I have something to tell you. You're an idiot. It was a crazy plan, and you are very lucky that I'm here to bail you out. That's the after-school special Americanized version of this story. But the Bible story that we have here is Jonathan winning an incredible victory and gaining some massive momentum against the enemies of God's people by plain faith in a powerful God. So let's walk through this passage a little bit. The first three verses, we see Saul's situation laid out plainly. He's pondering under a pomegranate tree. It's very interesting. The word there says cave. And so there's this idea here of, of Saul not, not kind of just saying, hey, let me take a minute here, but rather he's kind of settled in 
to a status of inactivity. He's sort of waiting for some great, big, amazing plan to pop up in his head, apparently. And he's gathered around himself some, not the best kind of company, let's say. If you look at those first three verses, you see that he's there staying in the outskirts of Gabeah, the pomegranate cave at Migron, and the people who were with him, about 600 men. And they included Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, who was Ichabod's brother. Now, the author mentions this. We don't hear anything else about Ahijah at this moment, but the author does want us to point out that, wow, the kind of company that Saul's gathered is the descendant of Ichabod. If you remember Ichabod from earlier in 1 Samuel, Ichabod was born the moment Israel fell to the Philistines. And his mother, in desperation and sorrow, and with her last breath, names her son Ichabod. And do you remember what Ichabod means? It's a question. Where is the glory? Kind of defines Saul's moment in life here too. Where is the glory? But he's gathered around himself Ahijah. And he's also collected the ark. And he's put an ephod, that, that um, <laughs> I want to say costume. It's a breastplate worn by the priest that was used in worship, the ephod was. And what seems to be happening here is that Saul has recognized his last interaction with Samuel, the prophet, priest, who was the leader of Israel before Saul showed up. He seems to recognize, hey, my, my relationship with Samuel is kind of busted right now. It's not in a good place. So I need to find some other good spiritual counsel for this next venture in my life. And he doesn't seem to pick a very good one. But he's also gathering the ark with himself. And, and so the author tells us at this moment the ark was traveling around with the armies of Israel which wasn't necessarily prescribed. And actually, the last time that we saw the ark going into battle with Israel didn't go very well because they basically treated the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot and acted like because they had the ark there, there was no way they could lose no matter what they did, thought, or said. This is Saul's situation. He's enjoying some time under the pomegranate tree, either trying to come up with an amazing plan or trying to forget entirely about where his life had led him to this moment. If you remember, the punishment that he received from Samuel for disobeying the Lord was not that he would no longer be king, but rather that he would no, not have a dynasty of kings to come from his line. And that's a fascinating thing when we come to chapter 14. Because when you see Jonathan, Saul's son, what do we think of him? He would make a pretty good king. In fact, he seems to be the kind of person that would make a better king than his dad. So Saul's disobedience in chapter 13 that resulted in the punishment of him not being able to sort of brag in one sense on, well, I know that my line will continue forever and there will always be someone from the line of Saul. See, he's not the only one who lost out in that punishment. Because in one sense, the author's showing us that Jonathan was just the right kind of plain faith and a powerful God kind of guy that you'd want sitting on the throne. And let's look at his plain faith plan. First, he decides to go and insult his enemies. I mean, this is a very fun kind of military thing to do, isn't it? He doesn't insult them directly to their face, but when he's talking to his armor bearer, he says, let's go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. 
And this particular insult of uncircumcised refers to the fact that the Philistines are not God's people. We are God's people, Jonathan says. We are the one who has the power of Yahweh on our side. Philistines do not have that. All they have is just what we can see. Jonathan appeals to the fact that all that he and his armor bearer have is unseen. And that creates a faith in him that leads him to take this kind of action. So he insults his enemies. He proclaims truth. We looked at verse 6. There is nothing that can hinder God from saving with many or from few. God does not look at his people and say, here's the situation. I need this kind of thing right now, otherwise I can't work. I was recently at a Christian event in an undisclosed location in the recent months. Just be as vague as I possibly can with this. But I heard a Christian leader stand up and say, in light of what James says about Elijah being simply a man who trusted in God, and it was that prayer of that righteous man that avails much, in talking about that passage, this person stood up in front of other Christians and said, God can't move unless we do. My immediate thought was, if that's really true, what hope do we have? What hope do I have? If God is sitting up there with his arms folded and saying, until you have a bigger army, a smaller army, or this or that, I cannot do a single thing. I don't think that's the God of the Bible. What we see in the, in the Bible, the true God's word, is that God is the initiator of his work. Yeah, we participate. We are called to do so. Jonathan teaches us that. Plain faith in a powerful God. We need that, otherwise we're being disobedient. Where does that faith come from? Where does the initial truth that, hey, we do need to act, actually come from? It comes from this verse 6, where he says, there's nothing that can hinder the Lord by, for, from saving by many or by few. So let's go and see what happens. And what's fascinating, too, about Jonathan's statement here is not, hey, you know what? God said that if we believe, that he'll do amazing things. So let's hold God to his word. We'll demand it from him. He said it. So we're going to interpret it our own way. No, he says, look, let's go up. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That is real plain faith, church. See, the, the exaggerated and colorful and, and, and more boisterous kind of faith that we see in Christendom today is the one that says, I claim this, that I'm going to take hold of something that I'm going to aggressively make something mine that I think God owes to me because of what his word says. Rather, Jonathan shows us the attitude of true faith is not one that shakes its fist at God until he finally gives them what they want, but rather a faith that says, it may be that God could work through us. He could deliver us through just the two of us. He could change the tide of the battle. He could do it. What does that mean? Jonathan recognizes God is not a math equation that as long as we do everything exactly right, we can expect God to act in this magical way like a genie. Rather, Jonathan says God is the God over all, that he is the powerful God. He is the ruler over all creation. And if that's true, then I can only go into something and say, hey, why don't we step out in faith and we'll trust God? Jonathan's attitude is, 
the worst they can do is kill us. I mean, that sounds like amazing faith to me. But I would say, also, it seems that Jonathan is presenting us with plain faith. Okay, soapbox over. He insults his enemies. He proclaims truth. He encourages his friend, and his friend encourages him. And uh, the response of the armor bearer, he says, I am with you heart and soul. It's really fascinating because going back to 13 and verse 14, God says, well, Samuel says on behalf of God to Saul that Saul's going to be replaced. There's going to be another dynasty, and it is going to be someone who has a heart after him. This is the same kind of language going on. See, the armor bearer then represents the one who says, hey, I'm with you heart and soul, completely in line with you. He insults his enemies, he proclaims truth, he encourages his friend, and he comes up with a crazy plan. And here's that crazy plan. First of all, enter the enemy camp. Enemies bigger than you. You're starting off with a crazy early, Jonathan. Way to go. Second, traverse dangerous terrain to get there. What we see is the author giving us an extended description of the rocky crags that Jonathan will have to go through. There's two of them. One's named Bozes and the other Sene. Bozes means slippery and Sene means thorny. So not an, it's not going to be an easy pass for Jonathan. In fact, the image that the author is coming up with here in the Hebrew is this idea that these two crags act almost as teeth, like the jaws of death, which Jonathan is going to climb through. Again, why they don't make a movie about this, I don't know. But he also has to climb through these, it says hands and feet. This wasn't just a, oh, it's kind of a steep incline. This was, he's crawling up this hill, perhaps under the threat of rocks and arrows from his enemy the entire time. So, enter the enemy camp, traverse dangerous terrain, and then alert the enemy. Let them know that you're there. After that, attack. We see in verses 11 through 15 the fruitfulness of Jonathan's work. He sees the enemy's arrogance as God's providence. He says, if they tell us to come up, then we'll know God has put them in our hand and that we will take their word for it. And we'll go on up there. And so they do. The author says that that day, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed about 20 men, which, you know, 20 against two, that's still pretty darn impressive. But it wasn't just about taking out those 20 soldiers. It was about what happened to the morale of the Philistines after that. Jonathan's fruitfulness was not so much about him going off, killing 20 guys, coming back to the camp and saying, hey, I don't know what's wrong with you losers. I just took out 20 of them. If we could all do that, then the math might work out. Right? He doesn't do that. The, the real effect of Jonathan's fruitfulness here because of his plain faith in a powerful God is that verse 12 is absolutely true. God has delivered the Philistines into the hand of Israel. He's confirmed his word. He's fulfilled his promise. Uh, Jonathan has walked out in plain faith just to say, Lord, you can do whatever you want. And God brings salvation that day. That is the ending of our section. It says, the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan doesn't say, hey, the Lord has given them into my hand. Let's go get them. He says, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel to all of us. And then again, just like his father said a few chapters earlier, the last time there was a big battle that Saul won, the Lord is the one who saved Israel because of his mighty power. Well, it's fascinating what 
Jonathan's dad does in response to all of this in the last section. Saul uh, kind of starts hearing things going on. He says, well, who's missing? Oh, it's Jonathan's missing and his armor bearer is gone. And oh, This is really strange. Uh, if Philistines are kind of fighting each other and they're in a panic and things are getting worse and worse. So he stops for a second and he tells his priest, he says, why don't you bring the ark up here and we'll offer a sacrifice. We'll try to seek the Lord's will on all of this. But then he says, hold on a second. When he says, withdraw your hand, what he's saying is, never mind. It's, it's very obvious what God's doing here. Because the Philistines, remember, are fighting themselves. There's an earthquake. God's salvation is here. He doesn't need to take the ark and then go, God, are you going to save us? While the salvation is happening. Right? They rally their troops. Even the deserters and those who were hiding from the Philistines come back out and start fighting for Israel. And again, in the end, the Lord is the one who has saved them. Such a cool story. It's chapters like this that make me so excited to study First Samuel, and I hope it's true for you as well. But I think it also presents us with a serious question. What is it that requires your playing faith in a powerful God today? What is it that perhaps you are overthinking you're sitting under the shade of a pomegranate tree saying, I don't know if I can act yet because i got to figure this thing out first. When really all that it takes in so many circumstances is a plain faith in a powerful God. What looks thorny and slippery in your life? What looks overwhelming? Are you equipped for it? See, we take those questions and we, we, we talk about them. We talk about our life circumstances so much more than actually interacting with what's going on in life, don't we? We're an incredibly introspective people. And that is not a problem when it comes to being thoughtful and thinking rightly. But when we come to overthinking, we actually end up with nothing but passivity and powerlessness. Speaking of powerlessness, have you noticed the power going out a lot these past couple weeks? It's just like for a couple of seconds each time. It's really annoying. I'm tired of seeing the flashing 12 o'clock on my stove, my coffee maker. Right? Like, why do we even have these things? Oh, yeah, food. That's important. But this morning, we noticed that the power had gone out again. If only for just a second, the power was gone and then came back for most of the house. We're standing in the kitchen and the lights are all on. Music is playing. Everything seems to be working. I open the fridge and the light's off. That's kind of nerve-wracking, right? What do you start to do in those kinds of moments? For me, I'm thinking, is the power out? No. Is the fridge broken? I sure hope not. Is the light bulb out? Like, you start asking all these kinds of questions, and then suddenly I'm like, let's check the outlet. Well, sure enough, the coffee pot and the refrigerator, this is such an interesting story, isn't it? Coffee pot and refrigerator on the same outlet. Coffee pot is also not working. Other things in the kitchen are working just fine. And I go, that's it. I got to do that manly thing and go out to the garage and look at the box where all the breakers are and use my knowledge of tripping breakers to do that amazing work that only a manly man can do of turning the breaker back the other way. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at that. I'm also really good at labeling some of those breakers. Not all of them, but some of them are labeled. I go over there and none, nothing's tripped at all. So we come back into the kitchen and we're like, man. And Sarah says something like, you know, let's get an extension cord. Let's keep our food in the refrigerator 
alive and well. She didn't say that. <laughs> Keep everything safe until we get back because it's Sunday. Of course, this happens on a Sunday morning, right? So I get an extension cord and all this is, you know, I, I'm like, well, this plug isn't working either and I can't reach that one. And suddenly, my dear sweet wife, I should say my wise, brilliant wife, says, that outlet has a reset button on it. Guess what happened when I hit the reset button? Power came back. I was running around overthinking this thing. And there was a simple built-in, built-in solution into the outlet. Overthinking, though, can produce passivity and it can produce powerlessness. It can produce passivity because we sat there and we go, can't deal with the fridge right now. We got to get ready for church and we got to get home. We got to get, we need to get back to the church in a little bit. Well, if we don't do anything about the refrigerator, what's going to happen by the time we get home? The, the, the food that needs the refrigerator could very well be spoiled. Our passivity could totally undo something that is really necessary. See, Saul was probably overthinking at the pomegranate tree as well. In chapter 13, he found himself at a place of fear that led to foolishness, and now he's finding himself in a place where overthinking produces passivity and powerlessness. John Piper has a really great article. If you ever um, are curious about Bible questions, he has a YouTube channel, and it's on Desiring God as well. It's just called Ask Pastor John. It's a really great resource. And I looked up overthinking on that resource as well. He says that thinking in the Bible is never the final goal of life. Thinking in the Bible is never the final goal of life. And that was convicting to me because I rest a lot of my spiritual maturity on thinking biblically, not so much on acting biblically. Thinking in the Bible is never the final goal of life. Overthinking can plague our Christian lives, and it indeed can produce passivity. It can make us inactive in the moments that we are meant to be active, and it can produce powerlessness. It can leave us kind of paralyzed in a moment to say, I don't know, I can't do anything here, just like Saul was before his enemies. I looked up the Merriam-Webster definition for overthinking. It said, to put too much time into thinking about or analyzing something in a way that is more harmful than helpful. You thought about it too much, and it became harmful. I think overthinking is the idol that we worship in our anxiety. It is the thing that we bow down to and say, in my anxiety, in my fear, and in my worry over whatever I'm facing, the thing that's going to help me is overthinking. All I need to do is find a pomegranate tree, sit under it, and just think about this thing until I come up with a solution. And a lot of the time, we never do. So what causes overthinking in our spiritual life? First, I think forgetting God's revealed will and forgetting his character. This, of course, appeals to what Jonathan shows us in chapter 14. It is his remembrance of God's will and his remembrance of God's character. It is God's will that God's people overcome their enemies. And it is God's character and ability to overcome enemies by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. That's what Jonathan remembers. Saul seems to have completely forgotten that. Do you ever forget God's revealed will for you? Do you ever forget God's character? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, I love this verse because one of the top questions you get in the Christian life is, what is God's will for my life? What is it that he wants me to do? 
And there's a great freeing answer to that in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Paul, rather, that's funny. Paul, the apostle, says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Yo, wow. Thanks for the biggest Christianese answer ever. I want to know where I'm supposed to move to, where I'm supposed to go to college, what I'm supposed to study, where I'm going to work, who I'm going to marry. I want to know all those kinds of things. That's what I want God's will for my life. I want that answer. God's will for your life is that you be sanctified, that you be set apart for him, that you be holy. Do not forget that as God's revealed will because it will unlock further paths in life where you can say in a difficult decision, does this path help me to be set apart for God or does this path help me to be set apart for God? And you might say, well, boy, that's easy if there's an obvious yes and no, but what about when they both seem to kind of offer that option? Where it doesn't really matter if I live in this place or that place, I think I can do so in a way that sets my life apart for God. Then pick. Well, I don't want to pick. No one wants to pick, I know. But we're free to choose so long as the path that we take is a path that we could see God leading us into greater devotion to him and greater holiness in our personal lives. So forgetting God's will is one of the reasons that we overthink in our spiritual lives. The second one, guilt and condemnation of our past failures. Guilt and condemnation that we have experienced in the past is never really just in the past, is it? We so easily bring them back up when new failures arise. I know that's one of my biggest problems. I fail in something minor, and immediately I remember my major failings in the past. And suddenly, all I can do is overthink. All I can do is become passive and powerless. Guilt and condemnation of our past failures stall us through our anxiety and through our overthinking. God's Word tells us in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Whatever you've experienced in the past that condemns you, that brings about guilt, know that before God, if you were in Christ, those things are removed as far away as the east is from the west. Thirdly, another cause for overthinking in our spiritual life is blindness to the resources he's provided. This is a funny one when we look at chapter 14. But if we are blind to the resources that God's provided, we're going to be stuck in overthinking and anxiety and fear. Saul looked at his resources said, I've got 600 men, I've got a hija, I've got the ark, I've got an ephod, and I've got one sword. That is, among all those 600 men, he had the only sword. And Saul looked at that, and he said, God has not given me enough. So what am I going to do? Act? No way. I'm going to find a pomegranate tree. God hasn't given me enough. Everything that I can see here and count, which if you remember in chapter 13, it does a lot of counting, very focused on what can be seen and experienced, and he misses the resources that God's provided. See, Jonathan looks at himself, and he looks at his buddy, the armor bearer, and he goes, the two of us could go up that hill. God might deliver us. Who knows? He saw the resources that he had. He had a friend. He had a sword. And he had plain faith. No time for overthinking. There's time for action. Last thing, what causes overcoming, overthinking in our spiritual life? Overestimation of circumstances and opposition. Again, Saul looks around and he says, we are outnumbered 100 to 1. There's no reason for us to act. we got to sit here and think. we got to make a plan. And that plan moves from a plan of attack to a plan of escape. A plan of how are we going to get out of here with our very lives and nothing else? 
How can we salvage this? Jonathan says, no, we're not moving backwards, we're moving forward. And he does so by plain faith. It is often true that the allure of overthinking is that by overthinking, we can justify our passivity or we can glorify our powerlessness. We can justify our passivity by saying, hey, you know, I know that there's a situation that needs dealt with in my life, but I just can't do it right now because God hasn't revealed what it is I'm supposed to do. So I'm just going to sit here. Or we may be those who say, look, it's not only that God hasn't lightened the path for me, but I don't think he's equipped me for this kind of situation. I need somebody else to bail me out here in my spiritual life. This is the allure of overthinking. It's an excuse. Again, I'm not condemning deep, good biblical thinking. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to see that overthinking is actually the crazy idea that is not crazy enough to work. Piper goes on in his discussion of overthinking and says, the head, where the thinking is, must do its supporting work so that the heart can do its main work. Did you notice the order you need to struggle with? Because you live in a world that in some ways you could make the argument is about heart over head, right? But in your practical everyday workings, it's what do I know and what, well, how will my knowledge and ability conquer the situations of my life? Piper says that the head must do its supporting work so that the heart may do its main work and not be deceived. See, if our head is stuck in overthinking and trapped by it and becoming passive and powerless, our heart is not able to push back against the lies of the world and rely on the truth of Christ. So with Saul, overthinking burned out his mind. And so his heart was unable to return to the Lord. You know, it might look like it. You know, he's got the ark, right? He's got a priest. He's got the ephod. He stops for a second and says, maybe we need to ask God for help. But all he's doing is continually dis domesticating God like we've talked about in weeks before. He's adding to his list of resources spiritual things that he's hijacked for his own will and purpose. See, Saul, like so many, are in, in a lot of ways, when it comes to spiritual things, we're just overthinking our way to hell. We're worshiping at the idol of anxiety in whom we trust that if I can sit there and just overthink and just really give all my brain power to something, then maybe I will come up with something on my own. And if I can get past that passivity and that powerlessness, overthinking is only going to get me to a place where I'm acting in my own power and not trusting Christ. Overthinking keeps us from the thorny and slippery way. Yes, it does. But it also keeps us from plain faith in Christ. We mentioned that Jonathan is walking through the jaws of death. Because it's such an interesting bridge as we think about what Christ has done for us. That Christ himself faced the thorny and slippery pass in order to overcome overwhelming circumstances and overwhelming opposition, it seemed. And he was able to do so in the opposite of what Saul found himself in. See, Jesus was unhindered by guilt and condemnation. He was the sinless lamb of God. He was fully aware that his father had appointed and equipped him for the task of going to the cross. And he had a clear view of what the author of Hebrews says is the joy set before him. Christ, our captain's power over death then, activates and animates our faith. Plain faith in a powerful God is purchased at the cross and at the cross alone. 
He activates our faith by giving us life by that plain faith, calling, out of, calling us out of passivity and powerlessness. He animates our, our faith in Christ by empowering that plain faith through the knowledge of him. And this is where overthinking needs to be shoved away and deep, true, righteous thinking on Christ takes its place. 2 Peter 1.3, we read earlier that he, by his divine powers, provided all that we need unto life and God, godliness through the knowledge of him. You need knowledge of Christ in order to see what cannot be seen in this life. Saul was stuck, only able to see physically what was around him. Jonathan was set free because he could see beyond what could be seen. He knew that there was a God who was not hindered in any way, shape, or form, that did not need many and did not need few, that he could do anything he wanted to, and he submitted himself to that will rather than his own. Christ empowers our plain faith through the knowledge of him. He removes our powerlessness in the Christian life by granting us access to his power. Christ defeats the idol of overthinking by drawing our thoughts to himself to his power, to his work, and perhaps most importantly, to his great love. There's a missionary in the 1800s named Henry Martin. Just read about him for the first time ever last night. But fascinating guy. He traveled to India and Persia in the early 1800s. He was actually only a missionary for six years. In 18, oh, sorry, 1806, he went off to India and had to go to Persia in 1811 because he contracted tuberculosis, which had ended up killing his parents. So he goes to Persia to heal and to try to continue his work before he finally dies a year later, 1812, at the age of 31. He was 25 years old when he went off to be a missionary. Could you have done that, 25? I don't think I could have. Not to the extent that he did. Listen to what he said he did. He said, if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, that's what he was working on, by the way, translating the Bible... Wow. If I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Do you hear Jonathan in that? If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. And if he doesn't have work for me to do, I'm not going to just sit here and act like I'm on vacation until he picks me up, right? Jonathan's like, let's, let's go headlong into this. Let's, let's trust in the God who is unhindered completely. And church, we have, in one sense, an even deeper faith because of what Christ has done. Faith that, like Henry Martin, can say, if he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Jonathan and his friends' hearts were united in that knowledge, in that plain faith, as is expressed in verse 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord, not even death itself, church. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is the mission of Christ for you and through you. So permeate your life with plain faith in Christ. Permeate means to spread throughout. Let plain faith be evident in every aspect of your life. Permeate your minds with the truths of Christ. This is why theology and Bible study is so important. Romans 12.2 is a familiar verse to many of us. Do not be conformed to this world. And that's an important thing at the beginning because that's what's going to happen by default unless something else happens. But 
be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Paul encourages you, believer, who says, I don't know what the will of God is for me. If you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind, you'll be able to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. And even, he says in the end of this verse, perfect. There's theology out there that says oh, the perfect will of God is, that's, that's shot, that's ended. There's no hope for it anymore because of sin. The perfect will of God is just the complete will of God. It's just the plan of God that he set forth before time existed. When he appointed Christ before the foundations of the world to be slain on the cross for you. So with minds full of Christ, truth will permeate our hearts, as Piper said. When the mind is doing its supporting work, the heart is free to do its major work. So fill your mind with the truth of Christ and let that truth permeate your hearts and motivate you to the action of plain faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians as he's defending his ministry to this church that's kind of questioning him. He explains the way we are equipped to overcome overthinking. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, that, that faith that wants to be really fancy and really evident and really, I'm going to get what God has for me. I'm going to name it and claim it. Let's go. The emotionalism behind all of that. It takes something like that and says, boy, we have power to destroy strongholds. But notice that that's not Jonathan's perspective at all, and neither is it the Apostle Paul's. He says this when he talks about strongholds. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Because even though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Jonathan had a flesh and blood battle to face, but ours is even harder because it's completely in the realm that you cannot see. I said it a couple weeks ago, and I feel inclined to say it again. We are not engaged in a culture war. That's not for us. Our war is a war in the spiritual realm over the truth of Christ. And it happens person to person in conversation and relationships. It happens with your neighbor. It happens with your coworker. It happens everywhere you go where you will say, Lord, it may be that you may fight for us here. So help me to open my mouth. What's the worst they can do? If Jonathan is able to say, the worst that they can do is kill me, I'm pretty sure your coworker won't kill you for asking them about their spiritual life. I don't know. Maybe you work in some crazy places. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That needs to start in your own mind. So that your mind can do the supportive work. So that your heart can do the major work. With plain faith in Christ, I would call you this morning to hold on to maybe one solid truth about him and his work. And make your way through that thorny and slippery pass. Climb up at hand and feet. And let let the world around laugh at you. Because that's what they did with Jesus. Stop being ashamed of the gospel. Talking to myself here, of course. Let's have that plain faith that says, I don't really care if there's a rocky crag on both sides of these things. I want to go up where God is and what he's doing. I want to be a part of that as well. So climb up hand and foot, church.
We're going to sing this song by faith. There's a line in there that says, we will stand as children of the promise. That's what Jonathan did. He stood as a child of the promises of God. God is able to save by many or by few. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is whether he's here or not. And no, you can't see him. Spiritual eyes, we can. We can know with full assurance the presence of Christ and the mission of Christ. We can stand in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the confidence that we can have. Thank you for the story of Jonathan's plain old faith. It wasn't a majestic, flashy, showy faith. It was a faith that acknowledged that we're nothing and you're everything. Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing. But as the psalmist says, by my God, I can run up a wall. Lord, we thank you that the way you work in us is not to empower us, to like give us superpowers or something and gloat about who we are, but rather we are to walk by your spirit and trust in your leading, trust in your will. Help us to rely on that revealed will closely to our hearts. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your set-apartness for God. Jonathan was that. And you did great things through him. Jesus was that. And you've done the greatest thing through him. You've accomplished salvation by sending your only son to the cross so that we could be made completely new, so that the eyes of our hearts could be opened to the deeper reality of what's really going on in this world. It's not a culture war. It's not about what flag we put on our front porch. It is about the posture of our hearts before you. May we be like the armor bearer, looking to Christ saying, do what is in your heart, not what's in mine. I'm with you, heart and soul. Lord, may that be true of us as we sing. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.